Hello, we're so glad you've tuned in to Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Leo Alstrom. I'm the worship pastor here at Rolling Hills. We're currently in a series, The Greatest Adventure, and today we're exploring the different miracles that God did in and through Moses' life. Our God is powerful, and we pray today's message challenges you with that truth. Now here's Pastor Jacob. Good morning, church. My name is Jacob Scrimshaw. I get the honor of being the discipleship pastor at Rolling Hills, which means I get to be a part at all the campuses of discipleship, Bible studies, community groups, and missions. It's just the honor of mine to serve uh, here at Rolling Hills. And today I'll be continuing in our series in Exodus, but it is Father's Day, so I don't want to go too far without honoring fathers. And for that, we have a photo booth out here so you can take a picture with your family. Just kidding, dads don't get photo booths. <laughs> However, I was in a meeting where I said, hey, what if we brought in some lawn mowers and some grills and we stand in front of it with like tongs and take a picture, but that was shot down. Um, they, just, they just don't understand the dad life like I do. Because uh, I, I, I am a dad, I have lots of children. Um, what we, we've, had, we've had four children. Uh, my first son passed away 15 minutes after birth. I say that just to honor his life, not to be Debbie Downer right off uh, the bat. He lived after 15 minutes and then passed away. And I have three living sons, an eight-year-old, an almost six-year-old, and a three-year-old. So it's lots of fun in my house all um, the time. But, you know, with the dads in the room, I'm sure there's a lot of great dads here. I know you guys are doing a really good job, but I feel obligated to let you guys in on something. I want to show you my coffee cup that they got me. <laughs> I've actually wrapped it up, best dad ever, but I'm pretty sure if you guys keep working, eventually, because they only made one of these, so I don't, maybe one day I have to hand it off to somebody else. You know, and recently I was drinking out of this coffee mug, doing my morning devotional time reading the Bible and when I read the Bible I usually kind of ask questions of the text and like what does it teach me about God myself and then what does it call me to do and the, what I wrote down for calling to do was was trust God I wrote trust God and this was weeks ago and then my wife comes down as I'm sitting there and doing drinking my coffee I say hey what's going on and she shows me a pregnancy test and so I start underlining trust God like this um I was like, okay, Lord. Uh, so we have a, another kid on the way, and then at the 10-week mark. Yes, thank you, thank you. Um, sounds like a bunch of babysitters willing to help right there. Um, but at 10 weeks, we were like, we don't want to wait to find out the gender. So we didn't do it in the doctor's office, but we were, somebody told us about this website called sneakpeak.com. Sounded sketchy at the beginning. <laughs> But, you know, you prick your finger, do the blood test, and then you send it off. So we did that, and it's weird. They sent it to you an email, so you get to find out the gender through email, So, because uh, all great things come through email. And um, so we get it in, and we look at it, and I really wanted a girl just because we have so many boys. We got three boys in the house. I was like, girl, at least it'll be different, you know. And then I look at it, and it says, it says boy. And I'm like, it's funny. I was like, is it okay to be a little disappointed? You know, so I was wrestling with it. But so the, for the past 10 weeks, we were, I had done the mental gymnastics, boys are better, um, you know, I, girls would be too hard on me, I know what I'm doing with boys, sort of, um, and so, like, I got to this place where, like, this is, this is, this is it, and then we went to the 20-week sonogram this week, and, you know, the 20-week sonogram is a lot of, there's a little PTSD there, because that's where we found out some things with our previous child that had passed away, it's where we found some of the things he was struggling with, and uh, with my second son, we found some things out there that he's since overcome, so I'm in there, and I'm, I'm, you know, 
you got to wear a mask in there so nobody can tell that I'm crying the whole time while we're in there anyway. Um, but we're sitting there, and she gets through, and she's like, everything's perfect. Everything looks great. None of the stuff in the past is there. But did you say you took a blood test for this? You're like, yeah. What did it say, boy? She was like, well, this is 100% a girl. <laughs> and we were like, say what? Like, I mean, I was in shock. And she was like, yeah, I've been doing this for 30 years, and this is one of the clearest girls I've ever seen. We're like... <laughs> And she was like, are you okay? And I was like, I, yeah, I just, I'm, I'm such in shock. And the first thing I thought about was back to my personal study time where I wrote, trust God and underlined it. Because that's what God often does. He speaks to us through our time in the word. And what I think we'll see today in this passage is him saying to all of us, you can trust me. You can trust me. So today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 7 through 10. That's a lot of content to cover, but we're going to do our best. I remember when Jason asked me, hey, you want to come preach at Father's Day? And I was like, yeah, that'd be awesome. What are we talking about? He was like, the plagues. (laughs) I I actually have something that day. I'm sorry. No, I I think there's so much. I mean, just in studying this passage, it's been a fruitful uh, time for me to see what God was teaching me through it, and I'm going to share some of that um, with you today. But just a summary um, if for what we're looking at here. I'm sure many of you are, may know about this story, may not. You're probably experts from it, from studying uh, the movie Prince of Egypt. Um, but Prince of Egypt's a good movie. Don't, don't hate on it. But what we see here is in Exodus, we've got to the point where God has called Moses and Aaron together and said, hey, I want you to go to Pharaoh with the end goal of letting my people go. And I'm going to give you specific instructions of what to do, how to engage him so that he can let my people go. But by the way, he probably won't listen to what you're saying, but I want you to go Anyway, and we see this in this passage, it's like in a perfect world, we sit here and read all four chapters here. We'd read seven, eight, nine, and read it aloud. And honestly, I truly believe in the power of God's word so much that we could just sit here and read those four chapters and God would use it in a powerful way. And I wouldn't have to say anything and God would change our hearts through it. But I think after reading for a long period of time, you guys may fade a little bit and be like, why aren't we reading every verse of this? But uh, it's kind of like we were trapped. We got a minivan since we had to upgrade. We've got 19 kids. So we got a minivan. It's got the DVD player in it. And my kids were like, we were, we had rented some book, some DVDs from the library. But I was like, hey, y'all should watch this one. And it was the the presidents, a documentary from the History Channel about all the presidents one by one. They're like, sure, we'll watch it. I'll pop it in. And I was honestly proud of them. It took all the way to Thomas Jefferson before they were like, what is this? Why are we watching this? Um, but, but I was watching, one of my sons was like, uh-huh, that's good. Um, but that's what I feel like it would be if we read all four of those chapters. But the first thing I want us to see here is kind of an overarching theme of Exodus itself. And you see it on the screen, is that the message of Exodus is a missional strategy by God to make his name known. There's lots of specific occurrences of different things in Exodus, but one of the overarching themes is a missional strategy by God for his name to go out. And what you'll see here specifically in this story is he's using what we call the plagues of Egypt as a missional strategy to make his name known. So what he's doing here is he is revealing himself. God, Yahweh, is revealing himself to the world, because when we get to the beginning of Exodus, it seems it has become a narrow faction of people who know about Yahweh Himself, and they're in Egypt. And what Egypt is, this is really in the first time in the Bible you see a organized empire 
one of, this is the strongest man on earth at the time that he's come across. And you see this empire, not just a normal empire, but an empire of oppression. It's an empire of oppression. And what God is doing is that I'm going to take the strongest nation in the world, the strongest person in the world, and I'm going to reveal myself to the world through them. This is a missional strategy. This is just a portion of the missional strategy for God to make his name known. You'll just see in chapter 7, verse 5, it says, And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. So the Egyptians will know that I am Lord when I do this work. And I want you to also see this, is that God is always duly showing his character to the world and his people. So what he's doing here in this passage is showing himself to the world and to his people. This is what he's doing in Exodus, but this is something I want you to see is always part of God's character. He is always duly revealing himself to the world and to his people. It's not just the, the, not just the Egyptians he's talking to. He's talking to his people as well, and he does that now with us. And most of the time when he does that in the world now, he uses his people to make his name known in the world. He uses us to go and tell about his great name. But at the same time, he's also working constantly in our lives and revealing himself to us in how he's working in the little moments of our lives in such a way that the world would look on us and say, there's something different going on in their life. There's these small little things that seem different than what's going on in my life. And what I'm saying is God works in our way, the way he works in this passage. He works in our life in these little miracles in our life, these little moments. And the reason I say miracles is this, because when we look at these plagues, we walk through it, really, we think of it as a bad thing. These are plagues that are happening. It is God. There's God's wrath involved in it. But the word that we use for plagues, really, a better translation would be miraculous signs. So God is using really these 11, not just 10, there's 11 miraculous signs. If you start with the staff turn into a snake that we'll talk to in a second. There's really 11 miraculous signs God is using to make his name known. Miraculous signs. So we're like, well, what is a miracle then? Let's stop for a second and talk about this. I love this C.S. Lewis explanation that miracles are a retelling in small letters of the very same story which is written across the whole world in, large, in letters too large for some of us to see. What that's saying, what C.S. Lewis is saying here is when you have a miracle, what God is doing is something that was already true to begin with. We just didn't have the eyes to see it. So he's written in large letters across time and history who he is and what he is and how he interacts in the world. What a miracle is, is small letters for us to clearly him opening up heaven to see what is already true. For example, every one of these small miracles is not something that is new in the moment. When the Nile turned to blood and he having control over nature, that wasn't something that was new to God at the moment. He always had control over nature. And in our lives, when he interacts like that, he's opening up heaven to show us moments where he was already in control. There are large letters written. So let's look at some of these miracles and talk about it for a second. So in the first 
In chapter 7 at verse 10, you see Moses and Aaron, they go, God sends them into Pharaoh, and he, they know that he's probably not going to listen, but God continually, out of his grace and mercy, sends these warnings to Pharaoh. They go in with the staff, they put the staff down, it turns into a snake. This is the first uh, little miracle, sign, miraculous sign God uses to make his name known. So they see this act of God, and what does Pharaoh do to respond? He calls in his magicians. And says, these guys can do the same thing. So they turn into a snake. Well, what I want you to see is like, if you look at this passage where I've never been in a room where there were staffs to snakes. But you have been in a room where the theme of this happens. Because this is true today that the culture, our culture is always looking to explain and imitate the power of God around us. The magicians came in and said, hey, we can do a similar thing. And what they did was an unreasonable facsimile. And what the world is always trying to do is do an unreasonable facsimile of God and explain God away and explain his power away. Because that's what the magicians were trying to do. Explain God away and explain the power of God away. And we face that every single day in our lives. The culture wants to take away who God is. And they also want to take his power away and even the things that God tells us that we need. Let me give you an example of that. We know that we say all the time that we need biblical community. We need other believers around us, that we desperately need them to hold us accountable, to hold us and be molded into Christ-likeness together. That is a transformative community that we, ha- that we need and that God created us for community. What the world would say is like, yeah, you do need community. But they try to give us reasonable facsimiles of biblical community. And this is the, this is the difference. That when, we're, when we came out of the pandemic, you were around people again. You're like, oh, I needed this. We know that we needed to be around people. Then we got around our, our, our believers again in rooms like this. And we're like, man, I desperately need to be around the people of God. But a good example of this, I just got through um, coaching eight-year-old baseball. And what that revealed to me was there's a lot of sin still in my heart about sports. Um, <laughs> No, that is true, but, um, but what I saw was this community, a community of people coming together, people that were there together more times during the week than we gather together. They're there at the fields. They're providing community for them, but the difference is it is an unreasonable facsimile of what God hopes for us because there's nothing transformative about sitting at a baseball field unless you're sitting at the baseball field with the transformative hopes of being more like Christ together. And that is the unreasonable facsimile of the power of God. That's just a small, minute example of what the culture always tries to do, of what they do here. And the magicians do it over and over here in these miraculous signs. So the Nile, the seven, uh, chapter 7, 14 through 24. This is the first of the large miraculous signs that you see. And what I want you to understand is... God does everything on purpose, and the Nile being the first thing that he comes after is on purpose because the Egyptians saw the Nile as not just a source of life, but as a God itself. They saw the Nile as a little G God because Egypt's power came from where it was on the Nile. So for Moses to come and God use him to turn the Nile to blood was a huge, large statement that it was written in small letters, but they're kind of like all caps a little bit to him to say, I am more powerful than the thing that gives you power. 
God is, is, is purposely going after a God itself. And then you see in uh, 7, 25 through 8, 15, the frogs. So God multiplies frogs throughout the land. Frogs take over. And then the magicians come in and said, hey, they did the same thing with the Nile. They're like, hey, we can make water look red too. They come in and they're like, Pharaoh calls in, oh, you make some frogs? Why don't you come in and see what my uh, magicians can do? And this is hilarious to me. So they come in. And they make more frogs. And I'm like, I'm sure Pharaoh was like, guys, you just made more frogs. How's that help in any way? Like, you couldn't get rid of the frogs. You just make more frogs. So the magicians come and do a reasonable facsimile and make more frogs. And then I want you to see this. The next one is the gnats. In chapter 8, 16 through 19, the gnats swarm on the earth. And then God, Pharaoh calls in the magicians, and they try, and they cannot produce a facsimile of God's power here. And that's true of what I said about culture earlier. Culture will attempt and attempt to give a reasonable facsimile and intimidate and imitate the power of God, but at a certain point they cannot. And the magicians come in and they cannot. And what is the magician's response? They said, this is truly the finger of God. The magicians stand back and now know that the Lord is God. But listen to what they say. He doesn't say that this is the hand of God. They didn't say this is the righteous right arm of God or God himself. This is only the finger of God. So even the magicians can truly see the great power that God is showing just from these small little miracles. But Pharaoh's heart. Steel hardened will not respond to this. And then we see the flies, uh, the swarm of flies in 8, 20 through 32. And then you see the livestock begin uh, to die in 9, 1 through 7. And then you see the boils in 9, 8 through 12. All the which um, is God giving warning after warning to Pharaoh. He has a chance to respond. He doesn't. So it's an increase. You see the, so far no one has died in any of these. But you see God's increasing First of all, his patience, that he keeps giving them chance after chance and chance and say, well, here's another chance. Let me send Moses with another chance. And if I were God after the, after the Nile, I would have been done like, oh, you don't believe it is? Boom. You know, that's the way I parent, too. It's like, hey, go to your room. They don't respond. Here comes the wrath. You're, you're grounded for the rest of your life. And they're always like, I know that's not true, so... But we get to the boils in 9, 8 through 12. And if you got your sticker when you came in to put on the map, I was hoping they would put a boil on there, but they put something else instead. Um, and then we see hell. Hell is the first time in 9, 13 through uh, 35 where you see human life threatened for the first time as God increases um, his his um, warnings to them and then you get to locusts in chapter 10 1 through 20 and I know some of you are thinking locusts that's, that's going on right now that's biblical stuff those are cicadas totally different thing <laughs> totally different thing uh, they look similar but cicadas don't swarm there's your nature fact for the day um, and then you have darkness in 10 21 through 29 where this whole time God sends Moses Gives Pharaoh a chance to respond. He doesn't respond. And it's increasing, increasing, increasing these miraculous signs so that the world would know that he is God. Um, what I want you to see really quick is the relationship between God and Moses here. 
So if you look at the book of Exodus, you see um, Moses' evolving character, him being transformed, being changed, becoming more obedient, having more faith. Till we get to this point where you imagine when Moses came to God and God says, I want you to go. He's not going to listen, but I want you to go anyway, that he was like, I'm going to obey, but I'm not sure what's going to happen. There was probably a little bit of doubt in his heart. But as he went and he saw a staff turn to a snake, his probably faith increased. And then he saw the Nile River, and he was like, God is really doing something here. I'm seeing God move. His confidence increased. His faith increased the more he followed along. And what I want you to see is this. Confidence in God increases through obedience to God. That confidence in God, the more God is calling us to obey and we respond, God will respond in such a way where we know that we can trust him more. So Moses is, he's doing it microcosm through Moses' life. Moses believes more and more as he sees God move through here. But the Israelites begin to see more and more and they believe to the point where it's this. God still works exactly the same way that our confidence in God, God is calling us to have confidence in him above all things. When everything is seeking to have our confidence, God is saying, have confidence in me alone. And our confidence is always built by obedience, by us not knowing the end result, but stepping out in faith and trusting God. God will respond and increase your confidence. A great example of this would be like, let's say, hey, God's calling me to serve in kids' ministry back here. He's, he's calling me to serve in kids' ministry. I'm not sure if I want to do it, but I'm gonna, I feel like he's calling me. You go back in there, and, you, and once you get back there and you see a child understand who Jesus is and your confidence increase because you see God move. Same thing for everybody who went to the beach this last week. There was someone like, do I give up a week's vacation to go hang out with 300 students that always smell weird and all kinds of crazy stuff? But going and seeing baptism, seeing life change, is like God using obedience to increase confidence. And what I want to say to us is this. The Father is always calling out to us to trust and obey. He's always calling to us. He's calling us now to trust and obey. My kids, they're not, they're not great swimmers. Um, but we've, we've given them swim lessons so that they get better swim lessons. Just a side note, when I grew up, there was no such thing as swim lessons. Your grandmother kicked you in the pool, and then you figured it out. But now it's a swim lesson thing. So we got swim lessons, and as we're in the pool, I'll sit in the pool, and I'll tell to my sons, I'll say, come. And they're on the side, and they're holding on. And I was like, trust me, come. And they'll swim a little way, and then they'll go back. And you know why they keep going back? Because they lack confidence. But my oldest, who's becoming a pretty good swimmer, I called out to him, come. And he comes. And I grab him. And he holds on. And he'll swim back. And what happens is his little brothers see it. They're like, oh, I can trust him. He is going to hold on to me. And then they begin to come to where they really don't need me to call to him. And they know that I'm always there and they can trust me. And God is calling out to all of us in the same way. He's saying, trust me. I just want you to obey and come to me. And I will never let you down. And that's what I think we can see here in this verse. The next thing I want you to see is God and his mission. If this is an overarching mission in Exodus, what I want you to see this is this. In each 
miraculous event God is telling the Egyptians and the Israelites that he is stronger than they could ever imagine. He is speaking here. He wants to make his name known to the world. And he's speaking specifically to the Egyptians, but also to the Israelites to speak to their faith the way that he did to Moses specifically. But he's speaking to the broader Egyptians and Israelites too. And, and what I want you to see is this, in these plagues, these are not just some random. Why would he do frogs? Why the river Nile? Why flies? Why locusts? Why would the sky turn black? This is not just some random occurrence where God was like, hey, we'll see what they think about frogs. Each one is a specific purpose. What God is doing, each one of the plagues connects back to an Egyptian God. It is very particular the way he walks through this. I told you already the Nile was seen as a God itself, but there was a God over the Nile. The frogs, there is a Egyptian God that has the head of a frog, which is the God of fertility and water. And if you go through, there's a God with the head of a fly. What God is doing in the end when there's darkness is the God of the sun. He's more powerful than that. The boils is a God of medicine. God is walking through each God of Egypt and saying, I am bigger and I am stronger. He is walking through each one of them to tell the Egyptians so they would have seen it and known to wait. This, this is not just some tribal God. This is a powerful God. Yahweh is powerful. And the Israelites are standing there going, wow, we've put our trust in the right place in Yahweh. And what I think it would tell us, too, is this. That he's telling us today that he is bigger and stronger than we can ever imagine. That that did not stop in Exodus. What I would say is if he is more powerful than the Nile, he is more powerful than the Nile God, then he is this. And if you hear me say anything else they hear this, he is bigger and stronger than whatever it is you're struggling with. He is more powerful than any sin you think you are enslaved to. If God is always working for the good of his people here in Exodus, he is working for the good of his people here and now as well. When Jesus died on the cross, that sin, that struggle, you are now victorious over it, and you are no longer enslaved to that sin. The same power that walked them through the Red Sea is the same power that takes away your enslavement to sin. Let's talk about Pharaoh for a second. Look at this. Pharaoh embraces the grace and compassion of God, but not the transformation that those gifts produce. This is super interesting when you look at Pharaoh because every time a plague comes or a miraculous sign, he sees it and wants God to relent from it. God, take this away. Even at one point, he asked Moses, please pray to your God so this will go away. And God relents. But he always goes back to the same thing every time. He wants God to relent. He enlists the compassion of God. He, wants, he, he enlists the character of God and his compassion and grace, but he doesn't change. And oftentimes when we look at this passage, I don't know about you guys, but when I'm studying it, it's easy to be like, yeah, I'm with Moses, I'm with the Israelites. But the more and more I looked at this, and the more and more I realized I'm more like Pharaoh. Where I beg for the deliverance of God. And I want his gift. But I don't want the transformation that comes with it. A good example for me was before I was a believer. Um, I was a 
manager of a restaurant and one night I'm closing down the restaurant and three men walk in the back with guns tell me to get down on the ground and put a gun to my head and say if you move one inch I'm gonna blow your head off and I remember in that moment um, of laying on the floor I was I was afraid but there was also a, a peace because I was asking God a God that I didn't know this can't be the end please save me from this and he did and the next day I got up and went back and did the same exact things I was doing before. I enlisted the compassion and grace of God without the transformation that comes from enlisting those gifts. And I'll say this, that sometimes we often embrace the grace and compassion of God, but not the transformation those gifts should produce. Because what we should see is when God acts in our life to relent, to show us his patience, to show us his mercy. Those are the little miracles that God is writing in little letters. What has always been true, that God loves you and he wants to change you, but he also wants to care for you. And when we embrace that care without the change, we are missing the biggest point of that change. God is changing us so that we would live for him, that God's miracles should lead us to a transformed life. God's goal with each one of the, the, the plagues and the miracles was to change people's hearts. And you can clearly see in this passage, God has the power over hearts. So about these miracles, if God's miracles to lead us to a transformed life, I want us to look at it like this. Look at Augustine's quote. I've never had any difficulty believing in miracles since I experienced the miracle of change in my own heart I don't know about you guys but a bunch of frogs is far less miraculous than my wretched heart redeemed a bunch of dead cows is far less powerful to me than a God that sent his son to die for me that those were just little letters compared to what God was showing that he was more powerful than and you see people ask, like, where is the wrath of God that you see in the Old Testament in the New Testament? It seems like it's two different gods. Well, I would beg to differ, and it's this. That all of the wrath of God that you and I deserve, when Jesus was on the cross, God lavished all of that wrath on him instead of us. All of it from the Old Testament. Everything you read, all the power is unleashed on Jesus. Because why? Because he loves us. When you think about it in those terms, it has to change the way we live. And here's three practical takeaways I want to give you. First one is this. is God is ready to speak to you. You may be thinking to yourself, I wish God would come and talk to me the way he came to Moses. He gave me clear instructions to be obedient. Well, let me give you the first easiest step, obedience God is calling to you, that he won't, where he wants to speak to you, is the simple obedience to wake up and spend time with him. To wake up and obey and say, Lord, I'm going to meet you in your revealed word. The same way when I woke up that morning, he revealed to me that I should trust him. And then circumstances met me on what God taught me that morning. That he's ready to speak to you through his word. Obedience to meet God every morning and hear from him. 
And hopefully he's speaking to you right now. And he's saying, trust and obey. I know in your head you're like, and there's no other way. So, but. The next thing is that God is ready to teach you. God is ready to teach you. The way he taught Moses as he was obedient, he was speaking to him, he told him to go. And as he was going, God was teaching him and discipling him to trust more, to obey more, that God is ready to teach you. And one thing he's trying to teach you is this. Whatever you are struggling with, he is bigger than that thing. And I can say that to you all day long until you step out in faith and believe it and trust it. You will never truly know it the way God desired for the Israelites and Egypt to know that he was God. We increasingly know as we follow that he is calling. He's speaking to us and telling us to go to meet him, but he's also to teach him. And with every miracle in our life, he's teaching us. That he's bigger than our sin, that he's bigger than our circumstances, that he's big and th- bigger than all of our struggles. And he's trying to teach us to trust him. And then lastly, God is ready to send you. God is a sending God. The way he sent Moses and Aaron, he never stops sending in that way. He is ready to send you. And this is the gospel truth. God did not save us to sit on the sidelines. God did not lead you through the exodus of your sin so that we would sit in our homes and just bask in the gift of compassion and mercy that he gave us. He saved us to send us. Because there is a hurting world out there that desperately needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they need to hear it from our mouths as we tell the miraculous things he's done and is doing in our life. That's what being a witness means, testifying to what God has done in our life which is the most powerful witness we can give. And secondly, just to people be around people so they can see us being changed by God, being transformed by God, and Him working in our lives. God wants to speak to you on that. He wants to teach you, and He wants to send you. It doesn't matter who you were when you walked in this room today. It doesn't matter what you did, what you struggled with. None of that matters. What matters is if you hear the word of God today and who you are when you walk out this door, that you would trust and you would obey. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We're so thankful you sent your son to die on the cross, Lord. That you showed all of your power, Lord, more powerful than a, than a frog in the Nile is my life redeemed from the pit. That we are a collective group of people that who have been redeemed from the pit. That you have made us new men and women for you, God. And if there's anybody in this room who's not taken that step to trust that God is their Savior, that God sent his son to die for, do not let another moment pass before they make that decision. Lord, I pray more than anything that you would send us into a world of darkness with your son as light as we go to be your people to the ends of the earth. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, which is part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, where you can also find great podcasts like Making History, a parenting podcast, Men's Leadership Network, RH Women's As You Go podcast, and so much more. If you want to learn more about what's going on here at Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app or visit our website at rollinghills.church. 
From there, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, stay up to date on what's happening and ways you can connect with us. We're thankful for you. God bless.